Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Imagine a world where we could just record this podcast from the comfort of our beds. That sounds like a cozy utopia, and I'm so down with that. No, I know. We're both sleeping alone, so just put this mic on the other pillow. There's space. Roll over. (laughs) And we can record this podcast there. That sounds like a dream. It's a February dream. Mm -hmm. Because this month is dragging. It really is. It is the longest, shortest month. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Well, the one thing that did get me here today is because we do have this books podcast to record. So let's get going. Let's do it. Welcome to The Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Jada Gomez. And I'm Anna Parsons. And today is another books episode. We're going to have our very own Christina Ariola, senior books editor here in the studio to discuss this month's book club. Yes, it is such a good read. It's a thriller that I finished in a weekend because I had to know how it ended. And then we've also got a fascinating interview with Esme Wang, who joined us via Skype. You're going to want to stay for the entire episode. It's a good one. Okay, but back to complaining for a minute, Jada. Like, I never hear you complain. I know, I'm not much of a complainer. But you got to admit, February's awful, right? This February in particular has not been my favorite. As you guys know, Valentine's Day was a little tricky. And it's just a long month of sporadic weather. And I'm just ready for it to be, like, settled. <laughs> All right, Jada, let's stop complaining. We've got to have, we got to say hi to Christina unless she wants to complain with us. Hi, Christina. Hello. Are you... I can complain about any topic. Okay. Well, what about this time of year? <laughs> okay, so I hate this time of year. As you know, I'm a huge fan of summer. I love reading outside. I love reading and on the beach. And you're from Texas. I love reading in the park. Makes I'm from sense. Texas. But also, it just seems really deeply unfair that there are no official holidays no. between Martin Luther King Jr. Day and Memorial Day. That's, That's really like a point. five-month stretch of time a with no holidays. Stretch. So... I know you're sort of a professional reader, so things probably don't change much for you, but do you find yourself reading more or less or trying to escape through books? Yeah, no, this time of year is really, really hard. I feel like in January, I always get off to like a running start. Um, Like I'll read like 15 books in a month. I'll feel great. I'll be like, I'm totally on track to hit my goal for the year. And then February comes and I just completely drop off. And the only thing I want to do is watch House Hunters on Netflix And, you know, like, just not do any reading. So I think I've read, like, three books in February after reading 15 in January. Oh, my God. Um, And so I've been trying not to beat myself up, you know. Like, spring will be here soon. I'll be back in my normal habits of reading in the park and reading outside. Um, But I do definitely think that February is sort of just like this lost month of productivity. I just feel it every single year. It's so hard to get anything done. It's true. It's got the least amount of days. It's the sleeper month. I find that you save more money in February, which I kind of like because you're just like... There's less days. There's There's fewer days. days And you're bundled up inside just waiting for it to end. It's just the doldrums. It's just literally a doldrum month of 
<laughs> that's the only way I can well, verbalize what, it. What about genres? So do you feel like you re- try to like reach for like books that make you feel like a little bit sunnier? You know, I think that that would probably be a positive move for my mental health. But no, I have not. I've definitely been reading like heavy nonfiction stuff, um, including the book that we're going to talk about today, The Collected Schizophrenias. Um, but yeah, I definitely have been reading a lot of memoir, a lot of nonfiction. I think it may be time to maybe pick up a beach read, even though it's not beach read season. What about you, Jada? I feel like in the winter, I kind of have the opposite reaction as Christina. I find myself like really buying a bunch of books on Amazon and just kind of like camping out in my apartment with like no TV, maybe some jazz and just reading through books. Um, and I don't think I... Sounds really sophisticated, Jada. It's like really not. I know. Though. I'm like, I'm at home eating, like watching House Hunters. But I'm like, <laughs> you have a record player too? Like, I, I do. <laughs> I do have a record player, but usually it's just like me and my dog and just like a bunch of books. Um I usually kind of like balance things out. So it's like if I read something that's like really heavy and dark, like my next book is pretty light. And then I kind of like go back and forth. Like I keep it like pretty healthy. But I think for me, I'm more focused on reading in the winter. It just feels cozy. And then I kind of like fall off in spring. But the idea of like reading in the park is really nice, especially since we work by a park. So I might have to pick that up. It's in our future. Yeah. yeah as soon as the weather warms up, I'm out there with yeah. a blanket. True. With my snacks yeah. out there in the sun. That sounds so nice. Yeah. These books episodes are going to perk right up. <laughs> just wait. Yeah. Oh, the, we... the books are going to be so different in yeah. the summer. <laughs> we could record this from the park, imagine. Oh my gosh, (laughs) we can have like a Bustle Books picnic episode. Well, I was really curious to see what other editors are reading and if they're coping through, you know, reading their beach reads or if they're like us and reading the dark broody books, you know, in bed waiting for the month to end. So let's hear what they're up to. I'm Sarah Buscar, I work in advertising operations. Currently, my favorite book is a cookbook. It's called Sugar Rush by Johnny Iazzini. He provides step-by-step instructions to make basically all of your favorite desserts. Um, They're super easy, and they have a lot of good direction to them. I am Kayla Greaves. I work uh, with the fashion and beauty team, and right now I'm reading Becoming by Michelle Obama. I really love this book because we get to see such a different side of Mrs. Obama. I think when she was in the White House, you know, she was always very formal. We kind of knew the type of person that she was based on the initiatives that she would support and things that she created. But in this book, you really get a look at her personal life. And she's really generous with what she shares, I feel. Um, You know, she talks about going to counseling with her husband. Um, You know, back in a time when going to counseling was very taboo and people thought that meant you were headed for a divorce. She talks about the fact that, you know, her daughters came from IVF treatments, which is a very honest thing that she didn't have to share with people. But, you know, so many women have fertility problems that it is so helpful to so many people. And it just shows how humble and how human she is. And we were so lucky to have her in the White House when we did. Uh, I'm Gabrielle Moss. I am the featured editor in the lifestyle department. And I am reading Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country by Craig Pittman, uh, because I am from Connecticut. I've only ever lived in the Northeast. uh, So I'm very fascinated by Florida, a place where I spent a lot of vacation time as a kid and um, seems real different from New England. a lot more alligators, a lot more unusual crimes. I'm Melanie McNucci. I'm an associate editor on the Lifestyle team. I just finished Colorless Sukuru 
Tozaki and His Years of Pilgrimage by Haruki Murakami. Um, I love all Murakami books, and I hadn't heard of this one before I passed it in the bookstore, and I was like, yeah, this is short. I'm going to read it when I'm on vacation, and it was great. I really enjoyed it. I'm Ariel from The Branded Team, and I recommend Meg Wallitzer's The Interestings. Uh, it's about a group of friends from, like, childhood camp whose lives all diverge and go off in different crazy directions and, um, you know, how their relationships are, like, dysfunctional but also, like, really deep from that time in their lives. And it's about who they grow up to become. Okay. That was a lot of inspiration, but, of course, we need to talk about our Bustle Book Club. Christina, what's on the slate this month? Yeah, so this month is really exciting, especially if you love a good murder mystery right at the beginning of the year. Um, So this month, we asked the Girl on the Train author, Paula Hawkins, to select the February book club pick. And she chose A Double Life by Flynn Berry, which is this really propulsive, really just like compulsively readable thriller. Um, It's set in London, and it follows a woman named Claire, who is a doctor. And as it turns out, she has a secret past. Her name isn't even Claire. Um, And she is the daughter of the country's most notorious murder suspect. So her father, who is a lord, um, has been on the run for, you know, some 20 years um, because he's suspected um, in the murder of her nanny and, like, the brutal beating of her mother. Um, So throughout the course of the novel, Claire sort of infiltrates her father's friend group who are all also these like very elite wealthy people and tries to figure out a where her dad is and b whether or not he actually commit the crime and so it's just this really amazing thriller I couldn't stop reading it I'm not typically actually a thriller person like I do tend towards the more like broody nonfiction books but I loved this one I finished it in a single weekend Yeah, I loved it. I'm not really a thriller person, but I just couldn't put it down. And I think to your point, like, even though Claire, quote unquote, is a doctor and she comes from this background, she also feels very much like an like an outsider of it as well. Like she's not ingrained in it. So it just feels it feels like such a a fun read. I had to know what happened at the end. I, I I couldn't put it down in a weekend. I like had to had to know how it ended. How fast did you finish it? I'm curious. Oh, I'm always curious whenever people read these books. I think I read it over a weekend. I might have wrapped it up by Tuesday, so like maybe four days. So as it happens, we talked to Flynn Berry. We have a Q&A with her um, up on the site right now. And she actually told us that this was inspired by a real crime that happened in England. So if you want to read about that, you should definitely check out bustle.com. Ooh, is there like a is there like a documentary on this crime that we can watch afterwards, like a little chaser? Ooh, I'm not sure. I'll look that up for you. Is there anything else that you guys are doing on Goodreads around this month's book? Or Yeah, definitely. So we are um, having some discussions on Goodreads. You should definitely join the Bustle Book Club Goodreads group. And right now we are also giving away 10 book bundles. And so each one has the book A Double Life by Flynn Berry, as well as two books by Paula Hawkins. So The Girl on the Train and her most recent book, Into the Water. Um, So there's information on how to enter that on bustle.com, and we're going to be giving away 10 books packages. So definitely if you want free books. Yeah, definitely take advantage of that. I wish I could. (laughs) We'll put a link in the description. So everybody go check that out. Get your free books. They're here. 
Christina, you don't you don't like bring those to the post office yourself, do you? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Penguin, Penguin Random House will be shipping those directly to you guys. That would be like an added bo- bonus. It'd be like Christina herself is going to deliver them to you. <laughs> Maybe in the future. Okay, so now we're going to get to your interview with Esme Wang and her collection of essays, The Collected Schizophrenias. Yeah, so this is a really powerful um, collection of essays out from Grey Wolf, and it's about Esme Wang's personal experience with schizoaffective disorder, but also just the broader media portrayals of schizophrenia, problems and nuances in diagnosing schizophrenia. And she really kind of takes a broad view of schizophrenia while also kind of zeroing in on her experience. And I cannot overstate how good this book is. As of this recording, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for two weeks. Yeah, I'm I'm frantically nodding over here because I'm actually in the middle of it. And I think it is, the writing is so good paired with incredible research and her own personal experience having schizoaffective disorder. It is, it's incredible. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Esme Wang is a phenomenal writer. She has her MFA from the University of Michigan. And um, so every every 10 years, Granta Magazine releases a list of 21 best young American novelists. And it's a really big deal because they only do it once every 10 years. Like this is not something that comes out every year. It's a once in a decade event. And Esme was named to that list in this um, last round. Um, and she actually was a novelist beforehand. She wrote a book called A Border of Paradise. And so this is her first nonfiction book. And I think it really is just a stunning exploration of a very misunderstood disorder. Mm. All right. Well, without further ado, I can't wait for you guys to hear this interview. And I want to listen to it again. So let's play it. So I just finished this book a couple of weeks ago and was completely blown away by it. Um, And like a lot of other reviewers and interviewers have mentioned, the first line is really, really powerful. It opens with a two-word sentence, schizophrenia terrifies. Um, And I think it's really interesting that this sentence doesn't actually contain an object noun. It's not really clear immediately who it terrifies, if it's, you know, us, the reader, if it's, you know, you... Was that intentional? Yeah, I think it, I meant for it to encompass everyone and everything. I, I think it was meant to implicate the reader as well as myself. It's also kind of the thesis of the book in some ways that schizophrenia is terrifying. It's also kind of the the premise of the book. Um, it, it kind of sets the stage for everything that is to come. I imagine that you probably did a lot of research for this book. Um, much of it is based on personal experience, but a lot of it is based on research and on science and on data. Is there anything that you discovered in your research for this book that surprised you or even you know, challenged your own ideas about schizophrenia? I'm sure there was. Um, although at this point, I may have forgotten what actually surprised me because I spent about five years working on this book. So um, if anything, it was often these little human moments and not so much these scientific facts or figures that surprised me. I can think of, for example, these human moments in watching the Slenderman documentary, which I write about in 
The Slender Man, The Nothing and Me, which is one of the essays. Um, one of the moments in which the father of one of the girls who is arrested and imprisoned for stabbing the friend in the quest to become one of the Slender Man's proxies. And he he starts to cry and you find out that he also has a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And that was one of the moments that really got to me and also surprised me. Yeah, I think it's like human moments like that that surprised me more than any kind of fact or figure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Yeah, I'm curious about how this book came together. Um, I read that you started writing it while waiting to hear back about publication of your novel. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems that Perdition Days was the first essay that you wrote. I think Mm -hmm. that's true, which published on The Toast. And then at that point, you know, did you envision this as a book And did you envision that there would be specific essays about specific topics or did it sort of come together over the course of your personal experiences over the next couple of years? That's a great question. So I started writing these essays kind of here and there. Perdition Days was first. And then I think uh, maybe toward the pathology of the possessed, which was in The Believer, came next, which was a much more researched and less memoristic essay. Um, and then a couple of couple more essays here and there that were published and written freelance. And so I had enough essays at that point that I went to my agent at the time and asked them, do you think this could be a book? Do you think we could try to sell this? Because I was also getting a lot of really great response for these essays. And my agent at the time wasn't particularly interested. So I kept writing a couple of more essays around the same topic, and I just realized that I was really interested in writing essays on this topic of mental illness in particular, but also the schizophrenias even more specifically. Around that time, I saw that the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize was opening its doors. So how that works is they open their doors in the beginning of January and then close their doors at the end of January. So you need approximately 100 pages of the beginning of a manuscript in progress. And then if you win, you work with an editor to finish the book. And so I decided to submit my manuscript as a collection of essays in progress. And if I hadn't won the book would have just died on the vine. It wouldn't have gone anywhere because nobody wanted to work with it. But I did end up winning. And so that's how I ended up uh, finding a home for that essay collection. And then so once we started working together, 
myself and Steve Woodward, my editor, we took a look at the essays that I had. And then we started talking about how the narrative arc of the collection might work. So while you were putting together this narrative arc, um, was there a moment when you said, you know, these are the things that I really want to address? These are the misconceptions that I'm really hoping to write about and shed some light on? I think maybe subconsciously, but it wasn't quite that deliberate. It was more like, oh, I think this is something that really intrigues me. So, for example, I would email my editor and say, oh, I, I think I might like to write an essay about the Slenderman case in Waukesha. And then he would write back and say like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Go ahead and do it. And then as I was writing it, I would I would come across like all these things I would want to write about in it, such as like childhood and imagination and kind of this thin line between imagination as a child and psychosis and, you know, what I had gone through as a child in terms of my very vivid imagination and how that might relate to my current diagnosis. And so, you know, these things might come up as I was writing, but I didn't go into writing the essays with such deliberate intentions. So you talk a lot in the essay collection about how conscious you are about the way that you are perceived by Mm -hmm. other people. And that's also, I think, one of the narrative arcs of the book. It shows up in a lot of the different essays is this idea that you have to present as put together, you know, with your red lipstick and your platinum hair and, you know, your thoughtfully selected fashionable clothes. And, you know, the way you talk, you you mentioned in one essay that when you introduce yourself, you say that you went to a prestigious university Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of just like a subtle coded phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that kind of ties into this idea that you have to be, quote unquote, high functioning. And can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about the idea of what it means to be high functioning with mental illness and, you know, kind of the way that people misunderstand that and maybe the way that that isn't the best way to approach how we understand mental illness? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the drive toward wanting to seem high functioning or this kind of inward push toward wanting to present as high functioning is quite sad, in my opinion, um, and particularly is is um, sad in so many ways when it comes to other people of the same diagnosis who are not quote unquote high functioning. Um, I I just feel like particularly in the disability rights community, the phrase high functioning is extremely fraught and is particularly not something that people like to use at all, which I completely understand. Um, It's a phrase that is linked with a lot of privilege. It's a phrase that excludes so many people who don't have the privilege to be able to present as high functioning or don't have the privilege to be able to have nice clothes or, you know, be able to um, speak in a particularly cogent fashion or be able to uh, attend like a quote unquote good university, whether that's because of, um, schooling reasons or like intellectual disability or simply because fancy schools cost a lot of money and it's really difficult to be able to take on that debt. Um, but I, I hope that there's a sense from the book that my own sense of wanting to present as high functioning is incredibly privileged as well as problematic. Like my 
desire to present as high functioning is the result of feeling as though I am starting off 10 steps behind everyone else and having this very strong sense of self stigma. So I, I, I have a lot more to say about that, but that I, I'll just leave it there for now. Yeah, I think one of the things that was interesting for me reading this was when you talk about you were having a conversation with a mental health professional and they mentioned that you were one of their only patients that they believed had the ability to have a job mm-hmm. and thus making you, quote unquote, high functioning. Mm-hmm. And it was just fascinating for me to kind of, for the first time, consider how problematic that is, but also how much of that is in and of itself dependent upon a capitalist framework, mm-hmm. um, like the idea that you are not useful to society unless you're contributing to it via a full-time job. Yes, And completely. I think that there were, yeah, I think that there were just so many other, um, I mean, you, you don't go into it in depth, but it was just a small reminder of the ways that this is, you know, permeates everything that we do. Yeah. I, um, one of my most popular pieces that I've ever written is this piece I wrote for L.com called um, I have a chronic illness and I'm afraid of being lazy or something. I can't remember the exact title, but um, it has to do with being chronically ill and often being unable to do anything except lying in bed and listening to audiobooks and how frustrating it is as somebody who has grown up being a chronic overachiever and this anxiety and this push I feel from inside to want to like work and this anxiety that I'm just lazy and how much of that is due to this societal pressure about work and how work ethic is all important and how productivity is all important and how if you are not producing, you are lazy, which is an incredibly negative thing to be, but is also something that you cannot particularly be if you are very ill or oftentimes if you are very disabled. And so that excludes a lot of groups of people from this narrative of productivity and hustle culture. But that's a, it's a narrative that we need to uphold in a capitalist society if we want this particular society to keep chugging along. In one of the more difficult sections of the book, um, an essay called On the Ward, you write Mm -hmm. about your various experiences um, in psychiatric wards. And near the end of the essay, you write, for those of us living with severe mental illness, the world is full of cages where we can be locked in. My hope is that I'll stay out of those cages for the rest of my life, although I allow myself the option of checking into a psychiatric ward if suicide feels like the only other option. I maintain years later that not one of my three involuntary hospitalizations helped me. I believe that being held in a psychiatric ward against my will remains among the most scarring of my traumas. I think I definitely had a difficult time reading this essay. Did you feel like you had a difficult time writing it? Um, I did. Um, It wasn't the most difficult essay I wrote for this collection, but certainly it was one of many difficult essays. (sighs) Yeah, just in particular, uh, kind of reliving the involuntary hospitalizations was quite difficult. I 
managed to find some old journal entries from when I was in those hospitals. And in researching kind of the history of those hospitals, also known as asylums, I was able to find some stories about how they used to be and how people have tried to overhaul them many times over the years. I also remembered just how, yeah, just how traumatizing I found them and also how they are so much intended to be a place of safety. But I also cannot watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because I cannot bring myself to watch a film in which so many people are essentially trapped in a place where they have no autonomy. And that is one of the most frightening things about involuntary hospitalization. And kind of thinking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest, you you do write a lot in the collection about, you know, different um, portrayals of mental illness in movies and documentaries, um, even in reporting. What do you think are some guidelines or maybe what would be like your expectations for media about mental illness moving forward? Um, I would really love for media to, or journalists in media to really think about the way they use mental illness when they are reporting about any kind of crime, particularly violent crime that happens. Um, anytime something violent happens, such as a mass shooting or some kind of bombing or something like that, I always hold my breath because I'm always waiting for some news to come out like, oh, it turns out this guy had schizophrenia or something like that. Um, it doesn't even have to be schizophrenia. Sometimes it's just this guy took like anti-anxiety medication or something like that. Um, just I think that that information should be used very judiciously. I think that journalists should think really carefully about whether or not this is actually information that needs to be included. Um, I also think that it would really behoove journalists and the media in general to have even just a cursory education about different forms of mental illness, especially the forms that show up in crime reporting. So, you know, learn about what psychosis is, like learn about what the schizophrenias are, learn about what these different forms of psychotic disorders are. Because I think that because the phrase is like, oh, that person is so psycho or this person was psychotic, et cetera, like those things are still very prevalent. I, I think it's important to make sure that that we actually understand what those terms mean. And um, it, it also would really help, too, to have people with those disorders in the newsroom. With that in mind, um, I'm sure you imagined that a lot of journalists and media people would be reading this book. What would be your takeaway for them? Or, or who did you write this book for? <laughs> um, it's interesting. I get asked this question a lot, but I I don't think I really thought about anyone in particular when I was writing this book. So I, I definitely wanted to write it for people who are living with some form of the schizophrenias. I wanted them to be able to read this and feel less alone. I wanted to write this book for people who 
love somebody or maybe many somebodies who have some form of the schizophrenias in order to learn more about those people that they love that maybe seem inexplicable to them now. But I, I think that that extends so much wider to so much wider circles as well. Um, I'd like people who are working in the medical fields to read this. I would love for psychiatrists and therapists to read this. I would love scientists and psychiatric researchers, um, all kinds of people. Um, and, and also just this sounds just like I'm trying to bring everyone into the fold. <laughs> but I, I do really wish that anyone who interacts with other people could read this book because we are all just trying to move about in this world in a way that makes us feel less alone and less afraid. And by hearing the stories of other people who may often make us feel afraid, um, I think that does a great service to both parties, both the people who may be causing the fear and the people who may be feeling afraid by their fellow their fellow human. Um, congratulations again. I'm sure this is a big, busy day for you. So I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Christina. I can't wait to see what you've got for us next month. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Anna. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Anna Parsons and Michaela Heck with help and love from Roseanne Salvatore. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely leave us reviews on iTunes because we'd love to hear your feedback. You can also reach us at huddle at bustle.com. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and I will see you next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.